1: Well, hello, everybody. Welcome back to Engage in Truth. This is John Chain. I'm a senior pastor of Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley Church right here in Colorado Springs, and I'm thrilled that you're tuning in again today. We are continuing in our study of Matthew 16, specifically verse 24. This is going to take us a few weeks to get through because what we're talking about here today are the principles of discipleship. What does that really mean? And when we read a scripture like this, it can be, well, it can be translated a number of ways. And that's probably because we've heard a number of ways to to really express the concepts in this. But as a verse-by-verse church at Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley, we we like to really exposit the text, really find out from an, an exegetical perspective how to really take away from this text, lest we put in an eisegesis interpretation to this. What I mean by that is we often have a preconceived idea. We then read that verse with that uh, preconception, and those thought processes, that that dominates how we translate and interpret that text, that's not what we want to do here today. We want to read it for what it is and really pull it apart and see how we measure up. How are we doing with this instruction from Jesus Christ, our Lord? Because we have been going through the radical teachings of Jesus, and what we find is that in one sentence, He can totally rock your paradigm. Your entire worldview is suddenly transformed with one sentence, and then you realize how fall how how, how you've just fallen short of this standard, this measure that Christ Jesus has set when he goes right to the root of the matter. He's not dealing with the externals as the law often dealt with. It wasn't really the intent of the law. It did deal with a great deal of the externals, but that's where the emphasis became, especially at that time, uh, those who were considered the religious leaders at that time, the Talmud and the Mishnah and so forth, and all of these oral writings and teachings, they were living by a great deal of these externals. It was no longer just the emphasis of the 613 commands that were given in the Torah law, but well beyond that. By this point, more than a thousand new laws had been added by the the measure of a man. Men had written to this, added to God's laws, and created so many externals. They were so far removed from the internal emphasis of getting to the root where Jesus Christ takes us right to the matter of the heart condition. This is where you are broken. This is where your sin resides. It is transcendent transforming your outward engagement with everybody else. It is affecting your society, your relationships. Your relationship with God ultimately is being corrupted because you're not getting to the root of the matter. And so this one verse... Matthew 16, 24 is going to turn our world upside down about what we think about discipleship, and that's what it should do. It should convict us right to our core and get us back to the plumb line that Jesus Christ has set for us as we keep our eyes fixated on the author and perfecter of our faith. So I'm not going to give you the verse yet. I'm going to let Dr. Ford do that. He's with me here in the studio again. Dr. Ford, welcome back to Engage in Truth, my friend. It's so good to have you back in the studio.
0: Hey, John, it's so great to be back and listening to your intro and exegesis, eisegesis. I'm just thinking all of this truth that our lord has provided for us we're not supposed to just sort of go and create our own truth that sort of suits and fits us eisegesis and sort of you know get scripture to reinforce that but uh using true proper exegesis to actually determine through the power of the holy spirit what the lord had in mind to transform us into what you're talking about disciples of jesus christ
1: amen and i think it's it's a lot bigger than perhaps what we consider i mean we think about okay i go to church on a sunday and uh i've read a good devotional lately I think what we're going to find is that what Jesus Christ has expected of us when he gave us those powerful words, even in John chapter 6, where we are to consume of him. I mean, it is a holy ingesting of everything about him. And of course, this would be an image of what we would see that he would give us at the Passover, when he instituted the Lord's Supper, and he said, this is my body that is broken for you, the blood that would be spilled, that would enact this new covenant But this total consuming of him and everything, how we live and breathe and move in this world would have to be transformed by the washing and renewing of our mind. To think totally different about what our engagement is in this world, i.e., we've talked about it being more spiritual than physical. When we start to hold on to that reality, and I'm not talking about some metaphysical thing, but a true reality paradigm shift That says that I am building up treasures in heaven. It is no longer about an agenda of my own on this earth, but rather what brings my king glory with every single breath that I breathe. I belong to him and his glorious purposes. He reigns supreme in my life. And it doesn't mean the absence of fun. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about, hey, hey, you know, you you can't have fun anymore. Rather, what we find is that when we are transformed by the washing and renewing of our mind, we start to enjoy the fullness of Christ. And what he is joy-filled over, we likewise share in that great joy. It, It changes everything. What we laugh at is different. What we enjoy doing in our hobbies and spare time and how we engage with others, all of it has changed. We now are truly walking as He walked and serving as He served. This is a lifetime journey. Because right now, as you're listening to this, you may think, I've already fallen short. Well, welcome to the club. (laughs) We all fall short of the glory of God. However... In this, we can encourage one another through iron sharpening iron, through developing and cultivating a closer communion with Jesus Christ. We can be sanctified and conformed to the image of the Son as a bride being readied for the day to be joined together with the groom. This is the great joy that we see in the epistles, that we be transformed unto his likeness. So, Again, our emphasis here today is one verse. One verse alone doesn't mean that's all we're going to give you is one verse, but Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, if you're listening and you have your scripture right now with you, you can certainly turn there. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and read it, Dr. Ford. It's right here for me. I love this verse. One of my favorites because I have to live by this every single day. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross. And follow me. Okay, now uh, we've talked about this in prior podcasts already that sometimes we interpret this idea of taking up your cross as though there's some affliction for you every single day. And it's not your spouse, it's not your job these are not the things that you have to almost sort of like taint, t- taking on the thro- the thorn that Paul had right he had this thorn in the flesh that were somehow i have to uh, humble myself and therefore that's my cross the thing that that breaks my pride that's that's taking up my cross what we're talking about here rather is this this attitude of the follower of Jesus is self-denial cross-bearing and loyal obedience Those are are tough. Those are three lifetime endeavors. So number one, self-denial. Let him deny himself. So the word deny means to disown. Let him disown himself. Now, that could be translated then when you're saying deny himself. Let him refuse any association or companionship with himself. (laughs) Okay, so that's hard. You know, to refuse companionship, companionship with yourself because you're always around yourself. so how how do you deny being around yourself or with yourself? That, that's the way we kind of get into this jumping jack over this. but but I understand is is you take a closer look at this that he's talking about self as equated to flesh. In other words, you have to come to the point where you deny that you have the capacity to save yourself. You reject that you, on your own, have the capacity to be what God wants you to be, that somehow through legalistic endeavors, through a checklist of do's and don'ts, you can somehow achieve this this standard or, or pinnacle in your walk with God that you've almost achieved perfection in this flesh. Rather, you have to reject your ways because God's ways are better. That, that's really what you have to say here, is that I cannot attain that which God desires me to be in and of my own strength. I, I can never a- attain such a thing, never do enough. It, it, I need a Savior. So in order to come to Jesus Christ, you must affirm that there is in your flesh, according to Romans seven eighteen, dwelling no good thing. Now Romans chapter three ten to twenty three tells us that Ecclesiastes seven twenty psalm fourteen one to seven, there is no good thing in you. Now, I'm not just pointing to you, I'm talking to myself as well. And that is very difficult for us to wrap our minds around. We think that we do produce good things, and therefore we hold ourselves to a different accountability or standard or perception of ourselves than we hold others, because we think that we do manufacture good, and that God helps us do a little more good. So therefore, we've attained a higher level of stature amongst men, so that God is is enabling us to achieve a new pinnacle, because he has set this very high standard, and so he's helping us achieve something better that was already there. It, it, you understand where I'm going with this. I believe that you're following with me. You're probably nodding your head right now. You can't redeem yourself in the flesh. It is a selfless perspective that says anything of value in me is him dwelling in me. He is the one working through me. Anything good that comes out of me is because he is doing it, according to Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. So we have to take this as the, the new paradigm that this is the great equalizer of it all that if i have been raised in a good home environment and thereby do some good things is that because i'm inherently good or because i'm i'm been raised up in a particular environment that produced a better way of doing something because what we see scripturally is within only a generation or two people can go back to a horrible sin behavioral pattern ever so quickly, one or two generations removed, and you suddenly look and go, how did they get there? How did that happen when they were on the right track and deviated so fast? Well, that's because it's revelation of the human nature of sin, that we are not inherently good.
0: Yeah, it's one of the things I love about the Old Testament are those types of examples just spend some time in chronicles or kings and you'll see these great kings they do amazing things and then another generation or two they've totally walked away from god and they're up on the high places again that's right Uh, and it just happens over and over and over again
1: and we've we've talked about that in deuteronomy where the lord instructed moses teach them this song and and even in teaching them the song you would think How discouraging, because the Lord is already telling (laughs) them, they're going to walk away from me. They're (laughs) going to forget me. But teach them this song anyway, uh, because if anything, it shows that the Lord was giving them everything they needed to not walk away from him. They knew the truth, but they chose to reject the truth. So this is not an issue of ignorance here. This is an an issue of rebellion of (laughs) the hearts of men. Totally. Yep, that's right. Yeah, so you know, as we look at this even further, we belong to him. This is what we're talking about here, the principles of discipleship. We belong to him, and we become a vessel for his good purposes. You become a conduit in a dark world to actually produce something that we might deem as good, moral, a change agent in this world. Do you see that in 1 Corinthians 6.20, Ephesians 2, 1 John 3 and 4? So we have to ask ourselves this very critical question— and get right back to a right perspective in this, is man good without God? The answer to that is quite revealing of what we think about the nature of man, that we can produce good things without God, that anything could happen in this world and be deemed good that God is not a part of. And what we find is that's not true. Anything good that happens in this world is because God's presence reigns over it. That's why hell is what it is, because they have rejected God and they go to the place where God removes himself from. Therefore, there will be nothing good there. So when we see even unbelievers do good things, that's because God has has created change and good things in this world that they are, perhaps you see a, a man, we call it chivalry, Right. right, maybe he opens a door for a woman. He does mm-hmm. something we might deem as a selfless act. Did he do that of his own free will, or was he raised? with something like that, where he knew that that might put a smile on somebody's face. He did it because he was raised to do it. Maybe he heard a good word. Maybe he woke up that day and thought a good thought, but he's not a believer. right? And so it's possible that there is good that can come out of even unbelievers because of God's working in and through the affairs of men. That is the the right understanding in this. Jean-Jacques Rousseau in 1742, he stated that humans are born inherently good. We've talked about that. I've been in probably every psych class. But if this is the case, wouldn't society be better if we could all just explore the potential of humanity in its raw, natural condition and remove the influences of culture and the chains that abound? I mean, ultimately, it always comes back to the idea of removing God from the equation. That's really what they're seeking to do. And when we look through history— Whenever we have said that men are inherently good and that what they do is going to be good and in the best interest of others, but they don't really need accountability to God. I mean, after all, that you know, we, we as a nation that's currently under God and many balk against that idea. We are one nation under God, but when you remove God from the equation, can there still be goodness? And what we see happened, of of course, through our history, is that there was a, a nation that actually removed accountability to God and decided that they knew what was in the best interest of humanity. And as a result, six million people were murdered with cold, callous resolve from 1933 to 1945. The Jewish people were slaughtered, men, women, and children at the hands of the Nazi regime. So when you remove God from the conversation and our accountability to him, you remove the definitions of morality and the fact that all men are created equal with certain unalienable rights endowed by a creator, not given by men, given by God. That's where rights come from. In fact, we see that even etched on the Supreme Court doors of Sir Edward Cox telling King James, just the turn after the 1600s, of reminding him that the king is under God, sub deo et lege. If the king is not under God, then men fall under tyranny because you need that higher accountability. And with that higher accountability, there can be good within a society, right? Checks and balances. So we want to believe that deep down inside, people are good, but I'm reminded of the wickedness of humankind, the animalistic nature within us every time I turn on the news. I I found this interesting, Dr. Ford. There was this article. I know it's a little dated now, but I still remember it vividly. uh, Because having gone on a cruise once in my lifetime, I I, I pictured this happening. Uh, It was in February of 2013. There was a, a ship called the Carnival Triumph. And it experienced a fire in the engine room that resulted in all the electrical generators breaking down. So the ship was left stranded at sea. It was floating directionless until any help could arrive. And and so the systems that provided running water and sewage filtration, they were all limited. So other ships nearby tried to provide the food and supplies, but it wasn't long before chaos ensued. So the people on board transformed this beautiful cruise into a living example of Lord of the Flies. And that's what happened. I mean, so despite the abundance of shelter, food, and supplies the patrons on this floating four-star resort, this resort, if you will, it all turned to this crime and vandalism and all these uh, unbecoming behaviors. I mean, you should hear what they were doing. I mean, smearing feces on the walls. I mean, it was unbelievable. The interior damage to this This ship escalated out of control, putting lives in real danger, all due to the lawlessness that was on board. There was no order, i.e. no accountability. And what I found in that is it was like the greatest social experiment conducted on the human condition in decades. The, The ship's patrons were only stranded for four days. I mean, as long as the toilets were working, everything seemed to be somewhat in order. But in 48 hours, there was a total collapse of morale, of rationale, of definitive law. I mean, everything just completely broke down. People were like, "What is happening?" You know, we see people running down the hallways, screaming and chaos. It was like, "How does that happen?" These were people who were, I you know, obviously had means within society to be able to afford a cruise ship altogether. And yet, this is how things turned out. I mean, to this day, they still talk about this social experiment. So stories like that uh, seem to remind us, once again, that people are inherently wicked. I mean, in other words, you can go to the psalmist here where he says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, Psalm 51.5. So we must heed the words of the prophet Jeremiah who said, People's hearts are, listen, deceitful and desperately wicked, from Jeremiah 17, verse 9. So contrary to Jean-Jacques Rousseau, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts, absolutely. And listen, I love my children. Dr. Ford, we have children. Right. I love my children. But had they just been born, fed, left with no direction, and then tossed into a room with other children and a box full of toys, you would have witnessed the ugly, sin-filled nature that flourishes in all of us. Yeah.
0: That's why I thought it was hysterical. The comment on Rousseau that, that people are inherently good is like, did you have kids? Because <laughs> as <laughs> right. said, if you had kids of your own, it's like that goes right out the window. And so I did a little research on Rousseau, and he wound up dumping his kids off at an orphanage. Oh my, so, <laughs> wow. So, but, <laughs> yeah, that's you know, telling right it there. It really is telling. <laughs> but it was just like, yeah, if anybody has actually had kids, you know, from the very, it, it does. That's that's not any training. That is our sinful nature from the get go. It's that's all right. about me.
1: And we think that somehow that if we just create enough laws, there's over 330,000 laws in America, we try to legislate morality, and what we find is we continue to digress as a society. And so we try to legislate more morality. And the reality here is it's all about a heart condition. Right. When we removed God from the classroom, when we stopped praying in schools and keeping the Bible as the baseline of even the development of curriculum, when we took God out of homes, when we stopped eating meals together around the dinner table in the evenings and talking about the things of our day and demonstrating prayer, closing our day in prayer, beginning our days in prayer, going to the Lord actively, frequently, and ensuring we didn't miss church. I mean, these are basics. We're not even talking about true fundamentals of discipleship yet. We're just talking about the basics, not forsaking the assembly of brethren. That is a huge one. And look how undisciplined we have become as Christians, and if that kind of breakdown is happening in our own home, no wonder there is a breakdown societally uh, at large. I mean, we are seeing the whole world digressing. This is not just an American problem. This is an issue that if you remove the fundamentals of faith, the moorings that have held this nation together since its inception— And now we're turning to Hollywood to give us morality or the definitions thereof. No wonder we're in a world of hurt. And so what we have to understand, it is only by God's grace and mercy to teach and instruct us to set up wise people in positions of authority to establish boundaries that we have a civilized society at all. So God is the source of morality. He defines what is moral and his ways are to be taught practiced. This is to be the executive order, if you will, in the society at large. Otherwise, there's just chaos. There's barbarism without uh, restraint. Uh, There's no moorings to it all. We will give right back into an animalistic nature. When we see what happens at the Battle of Armageddon, it seems like this archaic warfare that's described there. And you just wonder that the, the hate and the disdain for life will become such that it'll be almost like on horseback warfare again. I mean, there'd be so much destruction worldwide. All we do is continue to dive further into destructive behaviors. That's the sin nature in us. Rather than stopping and thinking logically, as if there is such a thing, that we somehow just evaluate that and try to retract from that, we seem to dive further in it. Like when we're caught in a lie, we try to add more lies to cover it up. Rather than stopping where we are and and acknowledging the sin and getting out of that, we compound the problem and make it worse. That's the sin nature in all of us. So we cannot truly be good Without God and any good that comes out of unbelievers is the result of God working in, through, and around them for His greater purposes. There's only one place where God will remove His presence, as I mentioned before, and there will be no good that happens there. So therefore, anything that we call good is truly good because God is involved in every detail of mankind, and he rules over the kingdoms of men, according to Daniel 4.17. And we will see that later in the end days that the restrainer is removed. Paul told the church Thessalonica that. And that's hard for us to process, that as difficult as the days are now, imagine the restrainer, i.e. the Holy Spirit, being removed of restraining these things, the sin that could dominate the landscape. And you think about what the world was like before the flood, where the Lord reveals to us that all they thought about was evil and destructive things all the time. That's all that they could consider. There was no good truly to be found in them. So when we bask in anything good today, we have to remember that is because of God. That is His mercy in a godless society. And so when we're talking about denying ourselves, we have to understand the true condition of sin and how repulsive it is to the holiness of God. If we don't have a right paradigm of that, we'll never truly understand the the principles that are necessary for healthy discipline to make us God-honoring disciples. That's what we have more to cover, Dr. Ford. I know we're still just scratching the surface probably have a couple more weeks on this at least. I I think you might agree on that. (laughs) Yeah,
0: no, this is a great topic and lots of of good stuff yet to come.
1: Absolutely. We want to thank you for listening to Engage in Truth. To listen to this broadcast and all of those in this series, go to calvaryfountain.com. And there you can find this broadcast and share it with your friends and family alike. We'd love to get the word out. This is a resource for you. If you need sermon notes, tools that you can use to even have a home fellowship, we will provide you all of that. Uh, No charge. That's our our gift to you because we want to equip the saints for the work of ministry. We want to thank you for being a faithful listener. And again, if you're looking for a church to come and worship with others, check us out at Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley Church and services are 8 a.m. and 10 a.m. on Sundays. God bless you, my friends. Take care.